Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day. Good afternoon. I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. When you hear the word gang, what's the first thing that comes to mind? For me, it's violence. And the second thing I think of is, well, it's complicated. Just like so many of the hard decisions we make in life. It's like at any given moment, you have all kinds of options, but usually you're only really conscious of a small few of them. For a lot of young people all over the world, joining a dangerous organization like a gang can seem like the only choice. And so they do it and they reap the consequences for better or for worse. Again, it's complicated. And the fact that we have so many people who feel like they have to join a gang or like they have to deal drugs or steal cars or whatever to make a living, it's a real failure of us as a society. That's my colleague Patrick Smith. He's a criminal justice reporter and he's the host of the latest season of the WBEZ podcast, Motive. Season five is out now, and it's a journey through the nuance of gang life, gang family, and the folks working to intervene in gang activity in Chicago. Patrick is here to talk to us about the year he spent with anti-violence workers for the podcast. Patrick, welcome to The Rundown. Thanks so much for having me. So you've been covering criminal justice here for about eight years. What was it about anti-violence workers specifically that made you want to go more in-depth? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First, um, there's a lot of different things to cover with it when it comes to criminal justice. You know, the courts, prison reform, police abuse. Um, but gun violence is one of the main things that I cover here in the city. It's okay. good or bad. I think mostly bad. It's the thing that people think about when they think about Chicago. And it's this problem that we're like constantly trying to figure out what to do about. And spending time with these anti-violence workers who are mostly former gang members it's one of the best ways that I could find to like get a real insight into what's driving the gun violence in Chicago, what might help to try to stop it. Mm. And then the other reason is that this type of violence prevention, this attempt to prevent violence, it's getting a surge of public attention and a surge of public support in recent years. Here in Chicago, you know, we've we've had millions poured in from philanthropic groups and then recently the city, the county, the state, they're all putting millions of dollars into this kind of work. President Biden has talked about this kind of work at the White House, talked about it as as a non-policing solution to gun violence. And his Justice Department has put hundreds of millions of dollars into this effort. So there's a lot of attention, a lot of support for this. And, and I wanted to get a look at what it really looks like on the ground. So two of the anti-violence workers that you interacted with most um, for that year that you were reporting on this for Motive are Sessie and Fats. Mm-hmm. How did you get connected with them specifically? So it actually all started, there is this uh, training, it's a training course, but a, like a long, it's basically a semester of school for called the Peace Academy mm. that trains workers in this kind of anti-violence prevention work. And so I started showing up at those classes, I would interview the people who were doing it, I, I rolled some tape on on just the, the classroom happening and, and really became sort of part of this, well, I wasn't fully part of the community, but people welcomed me there and, okay. it, you know, people, you always know when you're being welcomed into a space when people are willing to like crack jokes and make fun of you. So I got <laughs> to that point where people were making fun of me in the classroom. So that was good. And through that, I met Fats. He was one of the people going through the, the, the academy, the Peace Academy at the time. And then one of the instructors actually introduced me to Sessie. One, one day the class ended and he was like, hey, there's somebody I want you to meet. And... He drove me out to the southwest side of Chicago, and I was in her kitchen 
it's actually the scene that's in the first episode of the podcast of mm. her sort of she was making buttons of a person who had just been killed to give out to his family members and and I was like really overwhelmed by the amount of work that she was doing for victims uh, of gun violence and it kind of went from there uh, her and fats were just like I, I honestly am so grateful they were just so willing to open their lives up to me and, and let me be like you know at their elbow constantly with a microphone on uh, as they did this really difficult work yeah Walk me through what these anti-violence workers do in the city. What are the various roles and their functions? Yeah, so there's a couple different things that they do. There are outreach workers um, who their job is to be sort of out in the streets intervening in ongoing gang conflicts. Like they, if there's a conflict or if there's a shooting, they respond. They try to convince the people shot, the people involved in the shooting, not to retaliate. They try to stop the cycle of retaliation. They also try to pull young people out of gangs by offering them things like, you know, counseling, job training, you know, telling them, hey, you could apply for work here and, and sort of being like a an angel on the shoulder of people who are maybe hmm. half in, half out of gangs. And then the other thing that, that anti-violence workers do, there are victim advocates uh, who spend time with victims of gun violence, helping them recover emotionally and physically. They're also talking to them about not retaliating, helping them cooperate with police if that's what the victim decides to do. And then if the gunshot victim is killed, they're there to help the grieving family. I mean, something that really stood out to me doing this re reporting is when someone's loved one is murdered, that's this horrible shock. That's obvious. It's, it's a horrific tragedy, the worst thing that's happened to them. But then there's also all these logistical things that you have to figure out that you weren't thinking you were going to have to do for years or maybe yeah. ever if it was your child. Like, all right, I got to figure out where we're going to bury him. I got to figure out, you know, where we're yeah, like where the funeral is going to be, how we're going to pay for that. And so the, these victim advocates are there to sort of help with the emotional part of it, the grieving, you know, mm. offer counseling if it's needed. And also just say, listen, let me guide you through this this really scary, unknown world. You've got a lot on your plate right now. You need help. And I can help you figure out how to, you know how to do all the logistical stuff that, that you don't want to think about. Yeah. Um, Ceci and Fats talk about in the podcast, we hear them talk about how there's not really any line between this work and their lives, right? The mm -hmm. work-life balance is is kind of just a work-life inter intermingle, <laughs> which can be bittersweet, mm -hmm. um, which you know comes up during the podcast as well. Can you talk about some of what that means for them? Yeah, so I mean... You know, I think if you ask their bosses, they would say, hey, we pay them to work 40 hours a week. That's what they're supposed to work. Uh, but just by the nature of who these who they are, I mean, this is not just a job. This is like a, a, a passion, a dedication for them. And you're working on literally matters of life and death. And so neither of them are really able to to turn off. You know, they're mm. constantly getting, no, you know, Ceci <laughs> sleeps with a police scanner on, literally. And it's tuned to, to the, the, the district that covers Little Village. Oh. And, you know, wow. she's ready to respond if somebody gets shot. She heads out to the hospital. I don't think her supervisors want her to be always on, but she just, like, can't turn it off. And and Fats is, is similarly, you know, he's got the Citizen app and he's getting alerts when there's a shooting in, in East Garfield Park where he works. And it has a real impact on the workers. Uh, and we get into this later in the season, but both Sessi and Fats have health problems that their doctors think are connected to the work that they do. Fats... Uh, really? About two months ago, what what was admitted to the emergency room because he was in a hypertensive crisis. His blood pressure was so high. Ceci has has real serious heart problems, and both of their doctors think, "Hey, this work you're doing, it's 
really, really stressful and traumatic, and it's not good for your health. The levels of trauma that these workers are experiencing, I mean, they're, they're witnessing shootings. They know people who are shot. They are working with participants and helping them better their lives, and then those participants are killed. And actually, these anti-violence workers, according to the Northwestern study, is higher than it is for police officers. So these anti-violence workers are more likely to be shot or shot at than a police officer is. Um, which is not Ooh. to diminish the danger that police officers are in, no. but just to talk about this is a real, this is a high stakes, oh high stress, high danger job that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as much as you're saying that uh, Sessie is on 24 hours, it, I'm sure it can be hard to just turn that off, right? Yeah, of course. Um, so as I said, when I think about gangs, automatically the next word that comes to mind is violence. But when you're intentionally trying to resolve things, sometimes solutions can actually be pretty peaceful, pretty simple, which I wouldn't have expected. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the whole idea is that they're trying to find these peaceful and sometimes simple solutions to to problems that would otherwise be solved with violence. Yeah. And, and solved isn't even the really way to say it, because if you solve that problem with violence, then you're just be getting more violence, essentially. So so they are trying to find peaceful solutions. One example that came up, it's in uh, the second episode of our Motive podcast. Um, there was an incident at a park or near a park in East Garfield Park where somebody got shot and somebody else's truck got smashed up. Uh, and it was, it was two gangs that were involved. And so one gang did the shooting and smashing. The other gang got shot and, sm- you know, the truck smashed up. And it, it's a long story that we get into in depth in the podcast. But... Um, what they ended up being able to do, the workers, Fats and, and his coworkers, is they found a resolution to the problem by talking to both of the groups on, on, on either side of it. They, they got together and they convinced one group to pay for the car repairs of their, their, their rival gang member, essentially, so as to avoid further violence. And, and we have a little bit of Fats talking about that mediation that him and his coworkers did. We got together right across the street over there. So you talk to him and you're like... Listen, you know, I know there was the shooting. We don't want any more shootings after this. Yeah, we want the kids to be able to come out and still play and not be afraid, you know, and for something senseless. The buildings are gone, so it's not like you're going to be able to take a block or nothing like that because ain't nobody hustling down here. It's just friends hanging out, congregating, drinking, things like that. Yeah, I, when I listen to that, the full kind of interaction, um, that's in the podcast. You know, it was really surprising. I mean, it was just that simple. And then to hear you say that a gang, one gang member decided to pay for the car repairs of another well, gang. It was the whole, like, not the whole gang in the whole city, but uh-huh. like a bunch of the gang members all pulled together their money the, together. Yeah, yeah, that was wild. I, I, that's something I never would have imagined that would that would happen. So I guess it speaks to the um, the efficacy of this of this program. Um, Ceci talks about the expectation that once you're in a gang, you're always in. Um, and, you know, these these anti-violence workers were all, uh, I assume many of them at least, were in gangs before. Almost all of them. Yeah, yeah, there certainly are some who were not in gangs before, but but it's very few that I've met who weren't involved at least a little bit in, yeah. in a past life. So it just kind of makes me think about, like, how, how does that nuance play out? Like, are they still considered in the gang even though they're kind of, in, you know, on the other side of it doing this work? You know, I think— for them, they are like, no, I'm not involved anymore. Okay. But I was actually surprised that there's not the sort of, I kind of thought of it like you like renounced, you know, like you'd be like, I hate the gang and, and everything about it. And, you know, I spit on the ground if you mentioned the gangster disciples or whatever. <laughs> but that's not it. They are not in the gang, to be clear. 
uh-huh. and they do not approve of like their past life of, of violence, but they still feel certain, you know, good feelings toward the people because those were the people who were closest to them in their lives and they went through yes. so much together. And I also think it's important it helps them do their work that they understand why people get in gangs. Again, like if I went and tried to talk to somebody out of a gang, I'd be like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? And they would be look at me like you don't understand at all. Yeah. They understand why that would be. And one thing that really struck me is talking to so many people throughout this, the story of people joining gangs is always, mm. it's, it's very similar every time. They're like between 12 and 14 years old. Something traumatic happens at home and they feel sort of pushed out into the streets. They find purpose. They find family. They find, you know, approval out in the streets. And then that becomes... Part of their identity and these people stand up for them and and Ceci, uh talked about why the gang might be so important to you and and how it helps connect you in a way that that really did crystallize it for me yeah my second daughter i think she was a year and a half and i recently went through a divorce and i had to go back home so when i went back home my father was drinking he wanted money that I didn't have. So I went back to the block with my kids in a stroller. And I stood outside on the block, and my kids were protected by being in that hallway sleeping. I, I would have had nowhere else to go that I knew my kids would have been okay. But to that block. So that's our security. That's what I mean about family. Sometimes family ain't blood. So yeah, you hear her talking about that. I mean, and, and you can understand why somebody being there for you in that one of your lowest points would mean that you might feel an incredibly strong allegiance to that person, might be willing to do things on behalf of that person that some of us might find hard to hard to understand. Yeah. Um, I am curious if you could get into now or if at some point on the podcast there is a conversation about what it is like to leave a gang, even if people are more understanding, you know, by the time you're at a certain age. Yeah, we do. Actually, our fourth episode gets into how people get into gangs and then how they get out of it. Okay. And, and we've got stories of one story of a horrible tragedy pushing someone out. Okay. And then the other another story Fats told of him leaving the gang. He got out of prison. Uh, he decided that was the last time he was going to get locked up. He was in his in his late 30s. Um, and but he didn't know what else to do. Like he had been in the gang. He had been dealing drugs and otherwise hustling to make money for, you know, his whole since he was like 15 years old and he didn't know what he was supposed to do. And I think that's true for a lot of people who are like, I want to change my life, but like, who's going to hire me and what do I do? Like, yeah. how, like, how do I make money? How do I make a living? And he had a friend who um, bought him a used car and hooked him up with a job delivering pizzas uh, with another friend. Hmm. And that was enough to like give Fats a step out of like, okay, I can make legitimate money this way. And he kept climbing up and got new jobs. And so I think the lesson that I took from that was like how little it takes for people to not have to go down that path. Mm. And the fact that we have so many people who feel like they have to join a gang or like they have to deal drugs or steal cars or whatever to make a living, it's a real failure of us as a society because it actually wouldn't take that much to make people know that they were secure and supported in a way that they didn't have to go down that road. Yeah. So I want to ask you about your experience doing all of this reporting. Um, you talked earlier about kind of showing up to some meetings um, out of curiosity and some other things that maybe are a little harder to explain. But um, you also had some close calls. I mean, that 
shooting um, that happened in the podcast, you were feet away doing an interview. How familiar were you before this with being in such dangerous situations? You know, I've been in in situations where you can hear gunshots, um, but I certainly have not lived a life um, like many people in in certain parts of Chicago have to live where where violence is just around you all the time, and you just it has to be a part of your existence is 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 surviving that and, and sort of finding a way to to come to terms with it. Um, but that shooting certainly like they were they were yeah like you said feet away. If they had turned around and kept the shooting out, they would we would have been in in the line of fire, but we weren't at the time, and it was all right. And it's it's that question makes me think of it's a thing that I. I I struggle to explain because I feel like there's it's like two sides of the same coin, which is I just mentioned there are people who live in parts of Chicago and and other cities throughout the country where gun violence is just not normal, but happens a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it's true that they have to navigate that and 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 deal with it. Yes. But I also want to be clear that that no, there is no part of Chicago where like it's okay that there's shootings going on. And this does not like dominate the lives of every person who lives in East Garfield Park. The one thing that worries me covering this kind of gun violence, I think it's so important, is that it you might define a neighborhood or a part of the city based on the gun violence. And I want to make sure that I'm not contributing uh-huh. to that because there's a lot of wonderful stuff going on in Little Village and East Garfield Park and throughout neighborhoods in Chicago. And, and the gun violence is a horrible part of it that people have to live with, but it's not everything about their existence. Patrick, I'm so grateful (laughs) for you being here. Patrick Smith is a criminal justice reporter here at WBEZ, and he's the host of the latest season of The Motive Podcast. Patrick, thank you for all your work on this, and thank you for sharing it with me today. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Motive Season 5 is out now. Episodes drop every Thursday. Listen, like, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for the rundown today and this week. Have a good weekend. You earned it. I'm Erin Allen, and I'll talk to you Monday morning.